So much of the nature of sin is falsehood. The very first sin was birthed out of a lie, an, an exploit, a false pretense, and all people since then have been born with fallen hearts, given over to that which is false. All people since the fall are just born as liars. Some, however, graduate from your average liar to your outright conman. America has its own history of famous swindlers and con artists. One man did it so well that we labeled an entire scheme after him, the Ponzi scheme. Charles Ponzi was one of the greatest, or should I say worst, swindlers in America. He came west as an impoverished Italian immigrant with no money but dreams of riches. And after being shortly imprisoned in Canada for fraud, he moved to Boston to start over and try again. And he finally found a legitimate business plan that could get him rich. Back then, they had these things called international reply coupons. And when you mailed someone a letter, you would include this coupon in your letter, and that person, when they received the letter, would take this coupon and then exchange it for a stamp, and they could basically return your letter or send a return letter for free of charge. It was a way of including like a, a return postage in your letter. Now, the year was 1920, and due to high inflation in Italy because of World War I, the cost of these stamps, these stamp coupons in Italy, was, was very low compared to the redeeming value of the stamp in America. So Ponzi's plan was to buy a ton of these coupons from Italy at a very low price and then sell them in America for the redeemed coupons or the redeemed stamps at a huge profit. And we're talking 400% profit. And that was this, this plan was perfectly legal. All of this is perfectly legal. Ponzi had relatives back in Italy send him a bunch of these international reply coupons to get his business started. But then when he tried to redeem them himself, he ran into a lot of red tape. And he found that the legitimate side of this business was not going to be as smooth as he thought. So he turned to the illegitimate side of business. He turned to investors and he convinced them of the profitability of this stamp trade business. He told them that if they invested with him, he would give them huge returns on their investment. He was promising 50% return on investment in 45 days or 100% return on investment in 90 days. Which those, those numbers are just crazy because a bank will give you 5% in a year. Ponzi got his first investors, and he paid them off, as promised. He started a company, the Securities Exchange Company, and more investors came in. And he started getting investors at a rapid rate. I mean, why would you invest your money in a bank for 5% return on a year when you could literally double your money in 90 days? And so at first, he kept paying off these investments. In his first month, he made the equivalent in today's dollar of $54,000. In his second month, he made $324,000. In the third month, just the third month itself, he made $4.53 million. And by July of 1920, after four or five months in operation, he was making $250,000 a day. Now remember, with all this money from investors, he was supposed to be buying these international reply coupons and then exchanging them at a higher rate. This was supposed to be a legitimate business, but in reality, he was not buying coupons. He was simply paying off 
old investors with money from new investors without doing any legitimate business. And this now is what we call the Ponzi scheme. This is now the definition of the Ponzi scheme. An investigation was finally launched into Ponzi because his rise to millions was too good to be true. Investigators found that if his business was truly legitimate, there would have to be 160 million postal reply coupons in circulation. In reality, there were only 27,000. It was one month later in August that his operation caved in on him. His business was exposed as fraudulent and he was arrested. Although those who invested with him lost essentially everything. Amazingly, Ponzi got out on bail, escaped to Florida, and started a new scam right away. But eventually the police caught up with him there and he was uh, sent back to jail. All this makes for an interesting story, although I'm sure those who lost their money weren't too amused. There always have been people like Ponzi, there always will be. Those wanting to take advantage of others for the sake of themselves, for their own personal gain. And that the sad thing is, that the scary thing is, is that some people are willing to operate like this even within the church. You think that the church would be some sort of holy ground, some off-limits territory to such people, but, but not even close. Whenever God's people have gathered, frauds have been close by. And we call such people false teachers, and they're among us even today. The church across the world is still plagued by false teachers, all working to further themselves. But being in the church, the stakes are higher. With the average fraud, your life savings is at risk. But with the false teacher, your eternal life is at risk. False teachers are responsible for leading countless astray. And lest we be carried along, it is essential that we learn to identify and reject false teachers. This is our concern today. And this was Peter's concern some 2,000 years ago. Take your Bibles and open them to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. <coughs> Not long ago, we finished going through chapter 1 in 2 Peter. And there, Peter spent time ensuring that the churches would remember the essential truths of the Christian faith and, and have a high regard for the word. But as you turn the page to chapter 2, his subject matter turns exclusively to false teachers. And really, we learn that he was just laying the groundwork for this in chapter 1. For now, he turns to really the main concern of his letter. But the new church had just set sail. And if she was to listen to the voice of these false teachers, she would quickly sink. Peter, therefore, devotes all of chapter 2 to helping the church identify and avoid false teachers. And this concern is still extremely relevant and important for us today because false teachers haven't gone anywhere. And this morning, to start off, we want to look at the first three verses of chapter 2. We get this, this general introduction to false teachers, who they are, what they look like, how they operate, and the destruction they bring. Really, throughout the entire chapter, though, we'll see this, this portrait of false teachers expanded upon well, he'll take things further. But all churches would do well to know these verses so as to avoid the spiritual shipwreck that false teachers bring. Let's read together the verses we'll be looking at this morning. 
Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But, he says, false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This chapter and this passage play an extremely important role in warning the churches to be on guard against false teachers. And the stakes being so high, we we need these verses. We need to pay attention to this passage that we might be able to identify and and reject false teachers. With the stakes so high, I mean, do you want to be exploited? Do you want to be deceived? Do you want to go through so much of your life being given over to that which was, in the end, false? And then do you know how to rightly identify and reject false teachers? We need this passage. And along these lines from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I want us to point out 12 characteristics of false teachers. 12 characteristics of false teachers so that you can avoid their destruction. Now, just a few verses, but we have a lot to cover. This is going to be rapid fire. We're going to move in quickly here. But just know that many of these characteristics, we're being exposed to them here in this general introduction, and we'll see them again and again all throughout this chapter. But I want us just to see the, the flood of characteristics that really showcase these false teachers, who they are and what they're about. So from this passage, 12 characteristics of false teachers so that you can avoid their destruction. The first is this, they are not new. They're not new. Look at verse 1. He begins, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Remember, back in the end of chapter 1, he just finished talking about the true prophets of old who gave the inspired word of God. These men spoke from God. But now he's drawing a parallel. Now, Now false prophets have arisen. And really in the past, false prophets arose among the people. And in a similar way, false teachers are arising here and now. He's really saying that you should expect history to repeat itself. He references the past to make the point that we should expect more of the same today. We see the people in verse 1. Who are these people? Well, the people refers to the nation of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. This was a common way to refer to Israel. And truly, Israel had its share of false prophets, men who did not come from God. They were not speaking from God. And think about, think about all of Israel's enemies, and none were worse, you know, from the Egyptians to the Canaanites to the Assyrians to the Babylonians. None were worse and more destructive than those that came from within the false prophets. They constantly plagued Israel, dragging people away and eventually leading the entire nation astray. But it's really no surprise, false teachers are like counterfeiters. 
And counterfeiters are found wherever money is found. As long as there's money, there's going to be people trying to counterfeit money. In the ancient world, they, they valued money by weight. And so one of the problems they had was people using false scales. So your pound of gold on their scale wasn't quite a pound anymore. It's really no different today. It's only more sophisticated. Now, even if America scrapped the dollar and invented a brand new currency based on seashells, I guarantee you that pretty soon people would be making fake seashells. I mean, counterfeiters exist wherever money exists. And in the same way, wherever God's truth exists, false teachers exist. Those who counterfeit the truth for their own gain. From Satan's first strike in the garden, the enemy's goal has been to counterfeit, to distort the truth. And as long as God's word exists, there will be those who seek to distort it for gain. False teachers are not new. In one sense, this is bad. It can seem overwhelming to face an opponent who's just so ever-present. But in another sense, this is not, a, not entirely bad, for we can look to the past and see the nature and the characteristics of false teachers that we can avoid them today. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing today with this glance into the past. First, realize false teachers are not new. Second, second characteristic, they are infiltrators. They are infiltrators. He says again in verse 1, false prophets, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Understand that false teachers present a threat from within. This is a, a threat coming from inside the church, not outside. He says that they will arise among you. He switches. He's not talking about false prophets among Israel anymore, but false teachers in the church. And these false teachers don't necessarily claim to be prophets, but they want to be accepted in the church as leaders or teachers or shepherds. But they're not true shepherds. They're not even true sheep. But rather they come as wolves in sheep's clothing. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15? He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And Paul was dealing with the same thing with false apostles. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. I mean, look, this is just good strategy. If you're trying to take down your opponent. If you can infiltrate their ranks, you can do a lot of damage. And this is why false teachers present a greater threat to the church than those opponents who are outside the church. They're able to infiltrate the church, appear to be true shepherds, but then really explode the church from within. 
and cause a lot of damage. So expect infiltrators. Examine those even inside the, the church at large, the church in the world. You know, with mounting pressure from the world, all too often we in the church, you know, we circle our wagons and we focus outward on those attacks coming from the outside. But, but don't neglect to look inside. I mean, who are you linking arms with? Who are you following? Sitting in the pews could be a person who is secretly pumping out false doctrine. Like a broken sewer line underground, hidden, that is just slowly eroding the foundation of a building. Or standing behind the pulpit of that neighborhood church could be someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but is not, and is not leading people to follow Christ. Look, this is certain. He says in verse 1, there will be false teachers among you. This is a certainty. So remain vigilant and learn to expect infiltrators, those on the inside, even in the church, and examine those. False teachers come as infiltrators. Number three, third characteristic, they are subversive. They are subversive. What do these false teachers do? Verse one, he says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And notice the phrase in verse one, secretly introduce. It's one word in the Greek. It refers to bringing something in from the outside, something foreign in an underhanded way. That there's some subversion, some deception going on here. And that's what false teachers do. Don't expect the false teacher to show up at church church wearing a sign saying, I'm a false teacher, I would love to deceive you. Don't expect a false teacher to, to show up handing out support letters saying, I'm a false teacher, I would love to take your money. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Rather, slowly, quietly, secretly, they introduce their false words. This reminds me of the Trojan horse. You probably know the story. After 10 years of fighting, the Greeks could not conquer the city of Troy. They kept trying, but they couldn't get past the city walls. So they finally came up with the Trojan horse. The Greeks pretended to sail away in retreat. And in doing so, they left behind their monument, this great horse. And the Trojans brought the horse into the city as spoils of war. But secretly hiding inside the horse were a few Greek soldiers. And after nightfall, the soldiers got out of the horse and opened the city gates from the inside. And the rest of the Greek army was able to enter the city and they destroyed Troy overnight. Again, Satan has been working to destroy God's people since the beginning. And he, he, he's well-versed in tactics. And he knows that oftentimes it is far more effective to attack from within than to attack from without. There are great parallels with Jude here, the, the letter written by Jude. Also, he writes primarily against false teachers. And so together, Jude plus Second Peter really gives the church the strongest words of warning against false teachers. Just listen to Jude verse 4. There's only one chapter. So Jude verse 4, where he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. 
ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They just creep in unnoticed. It's a subversion. It's hard to stop when people act like this. You know, in a sense, it's easy to spot the preacher who is false. When you do that, you see the guy up front teaching false doctrine. It's easy to hear. Everybody sees it. It's public, and you can reject it. But it's a lot different. What do you do when you have that the guy who's quiet in the pews? He takes aside other people after church. He invites them to his house, and he, he slowly bends their ear to his false teaching. That is far more dangerous to the church. And really, the only defense against that is strong, well-equipped, vigilant sheep. And so here we are. This is why we are in Second Peter chapter 2. False teachers are subversive. Number four, the fourth characteristic of false teachers from Second Peter chapter 2. Number four, they are damning. They are literally damning. Look again at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you, he says, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. You may not think this is that big of a deal, that, that much of a threat, but it is. For when these false teachers spill out of the Trojan horse, they, they unlock the gates to destructive heresies. And just to, be, just to be clear, the word he uses for destruction here refers to damnation. This word is used to refer to the exact opposite of salvation in Philippians 1.28. It is used to describe the result of God's wrath in Romans 9.22. To describe the destiny of those going through the wide gate in Matthew 7.13. To describe the fate of Judas in John 17.12. And to describe the, the fiery judgment awaiting the ungodly in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. So yes, in a word... This word destruction refers to damnation. This is the eternal ruin that we are talking about. And now this word is being used to describe the false teachers. They bring destructive heresies or or damning doctrines. Remember at the end of chapter 1, Peter just finished explaining the absolute authority and sufficiency of God's word. It, It is more sure. It is more certain than any other thing. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. God uses his word to affect salvation in our lives and sanctification and to reveal his will. And this is why God saves his harshest judgments for those who distort his word, who alter, who change his word. If you tamper with God's word, you are preventing others from knowing the words of life. And if you teach something contrary, you very may, you very well may be the one responsible for sealing their doom. Peter and, and the other writers of scripture take this subject so seriously because souls are at stake. So just understand the, the damning potential of false teachers that this is serious. This goes to reinforce reinforce the importance of God's word, though. 
One thing is certain. If you plant yourself in the word, if you are rooted in God's truth, you'll know when someone comes and teaches otherwise. You will be able to spot the destructive heresy and avoid it. So plant yourself in the word. Get to know the word inside and out, and you'll be able to spot that false teaching coming a mile away. Let's continue on with this rapid-fire description of the false teacher. We have 12 characteristics of false teachers. Number five, they are apostates. Number five now, they are apostates. Look how Peter describes the false teachers nearing the end of verse 1. After they introduce their destructive heresies, he says, they even deny the master who bought them. Even denying the master who bought them. They've turned their backs on Christ. They have denied Christ. These false teachers here were once a part of the church. They once called themselves Christians, claimed to follow Christ, but they had apostatized, meaning they had abandoned him. They had turned their backs on the faith. They had said, you know, I want out. I'm not a part of this anymore. We call that apostasy. To deny here, it's the opposite of to confess. They have denied, rejected the Savior. They have essentially undone their discipleship. But there is a high price for such denial. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. This denial by the false teachers was in part doctrinal. We already know that they denied the second coming of Christ to return, uh, his return to judge the world. Who knows what other aspects of the person and work of Christ they deny. It's left unsaid. But Peter focuses on another way in which the false teachers denied Christ through their behavior. They denied Christ through the way they lived. Remember, as teachers, at one point, these people professed to be Christians, meaning they professed to be slaves of Christ, where Christ was their master. But they had denied, he says, their master, their Lord. They refused to actually submit to Jesus as the Lord of their life. They denied the sovereign lordship of Christ by their actions. Through their continual, unrepentant, immoral behavior, they in effect denied the gospel. And they turned God's grace into an excuse for sinful living. Just like we read of those in Jude chapter 4, they, they turned the grace of God into licentiousness, even denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. God redeemed us to be holy. But the false teachers, they took the liberty of the cross and they twisted it. They left out the whole holy living part. And in so doing, they they denied the master. They denied Christ. They eventually left the church. Some others followed them and they became apostates. Now a question comes up with this verse. Did these false teachers lose their salvation? And clearly now they were unbelieving apostates. But verse 1 says they denied the master, Jesus Christ, who bought them. And that word for bought is a word used of redemption. 
So were they truly redeemed, even saved, and then lost? Now, what, what does this mean? If, if someone is bought by Christ, how can they turn away? Can they turn away? The same issue comes up again later in chapter 2. And so here's the deal. It's actually a very significant question in Scripture. Can Christians lose their salvation? And we have by no means the time to deal with it right now. But I hate skipping over things and I taking the easy way out. So what I've decided to do is to come back next Sunday and we're going to devote the entire sermon to revisiting this verse and to answering the question, can Christians lose their salvation? Next week, the entire sermon will be covering that. It's the only thing I can do. We just have too much to cover now today to get through these 12 characteristics to go off and talk about this. So we'll save it for next week. For now, we'll continue to identify these characteristics of false teachers because that's what he's trying to do here. This is a quick general introduction that he's giving. And Peter himself comes back and revisits these characteristics. We'll do the same. We'll see that next week. For now, though, let's continue. And we'll have now the sixth characteristic of these false teachers. Number six, they are self-destructive. They're self-destructive. Finishing off verse 1. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Here's the first, but definitely not the last time, Peter references the doom of the false teachers. Not only do they introduce destructive heresies, wreaking destruction on others, but they will reap what they sow, and they themselves will be doomed. This is the same word as destruction from before, still referring to to damnation, to, to hell. Notice these false teachers are held accountable for their own actions. Surely Christ will judge them when he returns, but they are the ones who, you could say, did this to themselves. They brought this judgment upon themselves. All the more so, they knew Christ. They they knew the truth, the gospel, but they denied it. They turned their backs on it. They rejected his offer of eternal life. All the more so, they are just inviting destruction upon themselves. They turned away from the one who is the way and the truth and the life and invited destruction upon themselves. Theirs will be a swift destruction, like like a flash flood, from which there is no escape, and they will be carried away. They are self-destructive. Number seven, they are popular. Seventh characteristic, they are popular. Look at the beginning of verse two. (coughs) He says, many will follow their sensuality. And the key word here I want to highlight is many. Not a few. Many will follow them. Their teaching, their example. Here Peter predicts the future success of these false teachers. They already were gaining a foothold. They're only going to grow. As we will see shortly, these false teachers were appealing to the fallen heart desires in people. 
That they aim to give people what, whatever their sinful hearts desired. And anytime you do that, anytime you tell people that their sin is okay, you're going to be popular. That's, that's a popular message to the world. And so these false teachers were and still are quite popular. But we don't measure truth by majority opinion. We don't measure success by sheer numbers. Nowhere do we find the faithfulness of a shepherd measured by the number of sheep he has. Really, if anything, we could say the opposite is the case. Wherever we see the majority of people go, we know one thing. Turn, hold, Put a finger in Second Peter and just turn to Matthew 7, a significant passage that you just need to see for yourself. Matthew chapter 7. Turn there quickly. And there's a couple verses I want you to see in Matthew chapter 7. If anything, if you see the majority of people in the world heading one direction, you probably know it's the wrong direction. Because of this, Matthew 7, look at verse 13, the teaching of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Not not a few. Many who enter through it. Verse 14. For the gate is small and the way is narrow. That leads to life. And there are few who find it. Not many. Few. It's really clear. Just do this. Look down again at verse 21. He'll say a similar, or make a similar point. And the, the verses we've said a bunch, you know these, familiar with these, but notice this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. He's talking about professed Christians. They, they claim Jesus as their Lord, but they certainly don't live that way, as we'll see. But look at verse 22. Of these people, how many? Many will say to me on that day, this is the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. These were all false works, none of which are commanded by God, none of which are actual fruit. Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not that he once knew them, he never knew them. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So what were their lives like? Lawlessness. Just like those who had apostatized the false teachers, they denied the master through their lives. They called Jesus Lord, but they didn't live that way. Theirs was a denial. But the point is, how many are like this? A few? He says many are like this. You can turn back to Second Peter. But look, they're going to be popular. False teachers will be popular. Sadly, it's already been determined that the church of the tares will outnumber the church of the wheat. There will be and there are many false teachers and false churches out there. And if anything, this should be like jumping into 
just ice water, a cold wake-up call for the church to pay attention, to be discerning. Just because a person calls himself a pastor, just because an organization has the word church in it, doesn't mean they're on the narrow way. You have to be more discerning than that. And we don't judge truth or falsehood by numbers. We don't. But just know, false teachers will be popular. They will be popular. Number eight, let's keep moving here. Number eight, they are sexually immoral. They are sexually immoral. Verse two, in Second Peter 2, he says, many will follow their what? Their sensuality. Here we see one of the defining sins of false teachers, labeled sensuality. By the way, also in Matthew 7, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And this is one of these rotten fruits of the false teachers. Sensuality, a general term referring to sexual immorality, which could come in different forms from just any sexual relations outside of marriage to some of the more immoral excesses. And just by way of comparison, Peter uses the same word to refer to the gross sexual immoralities known by the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's down in verse 7. But listen, I, mean, I think you understand, Peter's words here have truly proven prophetic, have they not? I mean, from all the, the pedophiles in the Catholic Church, to even the, the deviants among those who call themselves Christian pastors, sexual immorality really is one of the hallmarks of false teachers. And surely not all of them are known by this, but those who are, the number is quite staggering. Amazingly, some of the false teachers were becoming so bold as to embrace sexual immorality publicly as if there was nothing wrong with it. And in the Roman culture, again, that made them quite popular. You have to remember that in the Roman Empire, sexual immorality flourished, kind of like today. Only then, believe it or not, back then it was actually worse than it is today. Although we're getting there. We're getting there. Homosexuality was accepted. Prostitution was a main street affair. Roman emperors were known pedophiles. And overall, sexual immorality was just normal. And it was in this culture, though, that the true servants of Christ, they took a stand. They said, look, no, sexual sin is wrong. The marriage bed is not to be defiled, Hebrews 13.4. God's will is that you abstain from sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. And people who practice such things, apart from repentance, will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. So you can imagine that message was not popular. And so as the false teachers embraced sexual freedom, Surely under the guise of, of God's grace, God, God's gracious, the pagan culture loved it. Now Peter will have more to say about this later on so we can move on. Just know that if you encounter anyone who claims to be a leader, but they are marked by sensuality, the, the sexual immorality, well, you know who you're dealing with. This is the eighth characteristic of false teachers. Number nine, they are blights. They are blights. It says in verse two, many will follow their sensuality. 
And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Do you know what a blight is? Imagine you're, you're growing tomatoes in your garden. You go and you pluck a perfectly ripe red tomato. Looks perfect. You turn it over and it's just rotten the other side. It has this huge black, moldy, diseased, rotten patch. It's a blight. That's what a blight is. And it, it, because it's rotted away, you, just, you throw the whole thing out. You don't want it. And that rotten patch, that blight, spoils the whole thing. And this is the effect these false teachers have on the church, that they're blights, they're stains, they're blemishes. That's what Peter will call them later on. Remember, these false teachers, they had left the true church, but those in the world, they didn't know that. To those in the world, they still associated these false teachers with Christianity, with the church. So their negative behavior reflected on on Christ. Peter says, because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Technically, the word them, in verse 2, refers back to the many people who will follow them. So it's not just the false teachers who give Christianity a bad name. It's those who follow them as well. They will lead to the, the church, to Christ himself being slandered, maligned. We can't control how the world views the church. In fact, we know that the world will hate the church and Christ just as the darkness hates the light, John 3.19. Those in the world will always malign the gospel, but far be it from us to give the world a reason to criticize Christ by way of our behavior. I mean, just think, how ungodly and immoral do you have to be if those in the world think you're bad? I mean, if your behavior is not even acceptable to pagans, how bad are you? But as Peter said over and over again in 1 Peter, look, if you're going to be slandered, if you're going to be persecuted, and you will be, let it be for for doing that which is right, not for doing that which is wrong. Let it be for your godliness and not for your wickedness. We're almost finished. Number 10 of our 12 characteristics of false teachers, they are greedy. Number 10, they are greedy. Verse 3 says, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Along with sensuality, here we have another major hallmark of false teachers, greed. And I don't think I have to convince you of this one. Again, Peter's words are truly prophetic. In the past 2,000 years of church history, the church has been filled with men driven by greed. From the insane corruption in the Catholic Church to even the false prosperity preachers on TV today. So many leaders have no desire to shepherd the flock, but to fleece the flock. They see ministry as a means of personal gain, and they're in it for themselves. Greed, really, it's a standard characterization of false teachers all throughout Scripture, from from Balaam in the Old Testament to Simon Magus in the New Testament. There always have been, and there always will be, people who pose as shepherds, but they're not concerned about shepherding. They, They want personal gain. It's very clear in the New Testament, though, that those who, as 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. 
It's right to financially take care of a shepherd so that he can fully attend the flock. But it's that very teaching that some people wanted to take advantage of. The true shepherds are in the ministry because Christ has called them to serve. And they will serve whether they're paid or not. doesn't matter. But false shepherds are in the ministry, all pretenses aside, to get rich. They see it as a clever way to actually gain. This will be another thing we'll talk about much more later. But, but just, just know to recognize the red flags when you see them. How about that? If you see a pastor and he's not making a living off the gospel... He's making 10 livings, meaning he's just getting super rich off of his church, off of others, off of people. Something is wrong. Greed is there. He's got his mansion, his jet, his yacht, you name it. Something's wrong. Greed is there. There's a lot more that can be said here. We'll we'll say a lot more later in the chapter, but... Just understand that that on the calling card of false teachers throughout the ages has been greed. So watch out. Number 10, they are greedy. Number 11, they are manipulators. Number 11, they are manipulators. He says in verse 3, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Going off of their desire for money, they will exploit the sheep to get it. I mean, they're, they're master manipulators. The word for exploit here means to make merchandise of. To the false teachers, the flock of God, it's merely another means of gain. People are viewed as paychecks. Families are giving units. And church growth really means income growth. False teachers deceive the flock only to fleece the flock. It's kind of like the livestock industry today. Farmers now, they, they feed their chickens, for example, you could say a less than natural food, but they're not doing that to take better care of their chickens. They're just trying to fatten them up. Chickens probably think, oh, we're getting, we're getting taken care of, we're getting fed so well, our, our master must really care about us. But he's not feeding them because he cares about them. He's feeding them to fatten them for the slaughter. And this is what false teachers are doing. By no means are they feeding the flock the pure milk of the word. But they're just trying to fatten them up for their own personal gain. False teachers accomplish this with false words, he says. This word for false in verse 3 comes from the Greek word plastos. It's where we get our word plastic from. It refers to something that's false, something that's made up, something deceitful, which in a sense today, it's kind of like plastic. Plastic is a cheap material that can be made to look like more expensive materials, right? I mean, just, just do this. Go home, sit in your living room, just look around. You'll see all these things, like it looks like it's made out of wood or metal, but in reality, it's just plastic. And in, in that way, plastic, it's kind of deceptive. And the words of the false teachers are like this. That's what their words are like. They're not what they seem to be. From a distance, they think, oh, that that looks good. That sounds good. They may say some right things that that pass the test. They don't don't bother you. But herein lies the deception. They use our same vocabulary, but not our same dictionary. They don't mean what we mean by the same words. You know, for example... You can listen to a Catholic priest talk about justification by faith 
And it won't necessarily sound wrong until you realize what he means by justification is not what the Bible means by justification. And that's how it goes. This is just another characteristic of false teachers inherited by their controlling master. Satan himself is a master of deception and manipulation. It only makes sense that those who would subvert the truth would follow suit. You have to be aware, you have to look out for false words. Lastly, number 12. There's a lot, but number 12, the last characteristic of false teachers, they are judged. They are judged. Finishing verse 3. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This last one is not, not so much a characteristic of false teachers as it is their destiny. Like prisoners on death row, they're judged already. It's only a matter of time. God is the judge. He has handed down the harshest verdict against those who distort his word and lead others astray. You know, in case you're not getting the point, this is the third time in three verses Peter has used this word for destruction. Again, referring to damnation. False teachers will be separated from God eternally and will be judged in hell for their deception. We'll see, especially in in chapter 3, how these heretics denied the return of Christ as king to judge the world. They asserted, you know, there's not going to be a judgment There's no final judgment. Jesus is not coming back. You're not going to get judged for what you do. And that's a common belief among the wicked. And the wicked often confuse a delay in judgment with an absence of judgment. You know, when the wicked are successful, when they do something wrong and they get away with it, they do something bad, but they're not struck by lightning, they tend to believe like, oh, I guess... God isn't watching, or, or God is asleep, or, or God, God doesn't care. When they do wrong and judgment does not immediately come, they grow in confidence, and they think they've gotten away with it. That they've gotten away with their sin. And they get bolder in their sin. Yet they are foolish to confuse a delay in judgment with an, an absence of judgment. For God is not sleeping. He sees everything they do. He knows everything they do. There is no hiding from him. They will be made accountable on the day of judgment. It's true. God has delayed that final judgment for the sake of the elect. That's what Peter will say in chapter 3. No, that's true. But false teachers are like those dangling above an active volcano by a single thread. They think they're safe, but really God is, God is the one who is holding them there. And that threat is not going to hold for very much longer. Upon death and on that final day, they will discover they didn't get away with anything. They didn't get away with a single sin. God will judge them for their deeds. They will face an eternal destruction. So I hope that by learning these 12 characteristics of false teachers, you now are better equipped to identify and to reject false teachers so that you can avoid their destruction. There truly are false teachers among us in the church, across America, across the world today. It's so important that you're vigilant, you understand, you can be discerning to spot them.
And if, if I can leave you with this, just one takeaway, one crucial takeaway from this, this general introduction to these false teachers. There's just one more reason, one more reason for you to be all the more so devoted to the word and to get to know God's word. You, you need to diligently study God's word and know the truth so well that you can spot false teaching a mile away. You know, you know the truth so well that no deceptive doctrine is going to pass. This is the surest protection against deception. Let me tell you a quick story from Ben Patterson, his book, Waiting. He writes this. This is a good one. He says, quote, The American Banking Association once sponsored a two-week training program to help tellers detect counterfeit bills. The program was unique. Never during the two-week training did the tellers ever look at counterfeit bills, nor did they listen to lectures concerning the characteristics of counterfeit bills or denouncing the manufacture of counterfeit bills. All they did for two weeks was handle authentic currency hour after hour, day after day, until they were so familiar with the truth that they could not possibly be fooled by the false. End quote. Do you get that? False teachers rely on you not knowing your Bible very well. That's how they get in. That's how they win. That's how they succeed. Because they take advantage of people who don't know the truth. But to avoid their ruin and to ensure you're on the narrow way, to ensure you're headed to the narrow gate, you need to know the word. You need to know what God says in his truth. Know the scripture so well that you cannot possibly be fooled by the false. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We confess that. And we thank you for this, this snapshot in time of the, the portrait of false teachers, which really hasn't changed. These words indeed are prophetic from Peter's day until now. This is what false teachers look like, how they operate, what they do. Help us to rightly understand and, and take this in. Know this, that we can spot them, identify them, and turn from them, for they bring destruction. Now, they reap a path of destruction wherever they go, both those who follow them and, and, and they themselves will be separated from you. It's, it's terrible to think about, and indeed we even pray for those that you might turn them back, Lord, but help us to avoid their ruin and to avoid their doom. And may we do that most of all by just clinging to the truth, the truth of Christ, of the gospel, of salvation, and everything in your word. Help us all to so well know your word that nothing can fool us. We just know the truth so well. Give us your grace in doing that, Lord, and help us to value your truth all the more. Protect us. Protect this church from falsehood. Help us to be strong in the truth. Come what may. In your name we pray. Amen.